0: In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talk to Benedict Dyka about building userlist.io, a new email automation platform designed for SaaS businesses that he recently launched with his co-founder. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 121. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wylan, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Benedict Dyke, who is uh, the lead developer, I guess, on uh, userlist.io. How's it going, Benedict?
1: Yeah, everything going right. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so the reason I want to have you on the show is it's always fun to do these episodes where we just kind of do um, a deep dive into how someone built a new product that they've put out and it feels like it's been a while since we've done one and um you and jane just recently launched Userlist, list and uh, it's a pretty interesting app and i've seen a lot of people saying lots of good things about it so i thought it would be cool to talk a little bit about uh what it does and dive into some of the, sort of the interesting technical challenges and stuff behind building it
1: yeah sure sounds good so i guess for
0: anyone who isn't familiar with you do you mind just introducing yourself first of all
1: yeah sure so my name's benedict um i'm you said lead developer it's funny because I'm the only, only developer. developer. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm kind of leading myself, but I'm I'm the the engineering co-founder of UserList.io. Um we're a customer messaging tool for software as a service applications. Basically, we allow you to track uh, what your users are doing inside your application and then send them messages based on that or send them messages when they don't do a certain, certain thing. And yeah, I think that's the gist of it. Like just uh moving data around and reacting to it.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So I guess maybe something to talk about at first would just be um, kind of like what makes user sort of a little bit different, maybe from other um, email marketing automation tools that people are sort of used to, because it sounds like Userlist is sort of focused on a more specific use case, where someone might use an existing tool like drip or something for this as, as well. But those tools are a lot more sort of general purpose. Whereas I think from my understanding anyways, UserList is sort of designed for a more specific need that it can sort of optimize the workflow for a little bit. Um, so can you give an example of how someone might use UserList in their business?
1: Sure. Um, so our main focus is, as I said, software as a service applications. Um, so we only have an API. We don't have any anything like forms that you can put on your website or embed somewhere. Um, so all the data we process is sent from your application into ours or via the segment integration that we offer. And um, yes, that's right. You could do a lot of that stuff that we do with uh, more generic tools like Drip, Um, but we're trying to really focus down on, on the software as a service market. And I think that will become more obvious in the upcoming months when we we're looking at like moving a little bit more into in that messaging and stuff that like the traditional email marketing tools don't don't do because it's not there. Yeah, it doesn't fit their general market, I guess. Yeah,
0: awesome, awesome. So um, how does it how does it work? It sounds like yeah, you were kind of saying a traditional tool has some sort of like email capture mechanism where you have a form somewhere and someone signs up. Uh, but user list is more about being able to talk to people who have like signed up for your application. So you already have that information about them. Um, so what does it look like to actually integrate user list into your app?
1: Yeah. So the the easiest way is we are the segment integration. Then if you integrate segment into your application and it's just one click, but like, that put aside, it's uh, basically a lot of HTTP calls. We have uh, some libraries for for uh, for Ruby and PHP that uh, encapsulate the API a little bit, but essentially, it's making calls to our API from within your application. For example, when people sign up, when they save the user record because they changed their name or something, or in key places where something interesting happens, like, for example, they trigger a key event in, in your application, like let's say your project management app when they create the first project or completed the first to-do or stuff like that and basically make an HTTP call to our API and let us know this thing happened for this user and then we will record that and trigger the automations on our side that you set up. Got
0: it, yeah. So I guess for maybe people who aren't um, super savvy with sort of the marketing side or onboarding side of like running a business, I guess the, be- the idea here is you know, someone signs up. Then you, uh, behind the scenes, kind of send a HTTP request to user list saying, "Hey, we have a new user." Now, user list has that information, and maybe that kicks them into some sort of onboarding sequence. That's like, "Okay, here is the first thing that you should do to sort of get started." Or maybe uh, when they create their first project, you can kick them into another sequence. That's, "Hey, and we noticed that you created a project. Here are some things that you should do next to make sure that you are successful with that project," or that sort of stuff. Is that kind of the use case?
1: Yeah, that's exactly the use case. Awesome.
0: Awesome. So you mentioned that you have like an integration with um, Segment. And something I also noticed when I was reading um, some of the documentation on the useless site is that, um, at least at the moment, all the integration is done is done like server side. Um, so with, I've never used Segment myself or anything. I, I My understanding of it is that it's a tool for sort of, trying to be like an all-in-one integration for all the different things you might need to include on your site so like your facebook tracking pixel and a bunch of other stuff instead of having to set all that stuff up individually you just kind of like connect it all in segment drop in segments integration and everything just kind of works but for some reason i had it in my head that segment was a client side thing is it only client side or is it like client side and server side and how does that sort of interact with um your like server side model that you have at least shipped with for um you know communicating back and forth between someone's app and user list.
1: Yeah so uh on the segment side I think they have a lot of these days a lot of integrations like they do client-side tracking but you can also send like server-side events or use one of the other tools that they integrate with to forward events from them from those tools into other tools. Um, on our side, it's basically just a stream of events from segment. We don't really care where they come from and if they're user-side tracking or client-side tracking or server-side tracking, it's just like consumed event stream. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um,
1: the, r- the main reason why we decided to go like on our side for our part of the integration, if you di- directly integrate with user list, the primary reason to go for server-side tracking there was um, Basically, simplicity. Uh, mm. With with any any client side tracking with JavaScript, there's a lot of uncertainty about: is there an ad blocker running that might be blocking us? Is there some browser limitation in place? Um, some browsers recently started uh, blocking uh, third party cookies and stuff. And when we started out, this was very much like an evolving process, and we weren't quite sure, like. We could build something, but who knows? next month it might be violating some limitations, there, and then yeah we're back to back to the uh, starting line. And also we want to make sure that we don't like miss anything, like for example, people could have uh, d- just have disabled their JavaScript or some broken JavaScript in the page, prevented our code from getting executed, and then it would be like the user would be using your app, but you'd not know about them yeah
0: yeah or you put them in some sequence that's not relevant to them anymore and you don't even know that like they're done with that task so they don't need onboarding help with it or yeah i think that makes a lot of sense like um i definitely see the benefits of trying to basically do everything in a controlled environment where if it's on the server you know for sure that you know you're the one writing the code it's running on Uh, infrastructure that you control um so you have a lot more confidence that things are working and it's also just one less annoying javascript snippet sent to (laughs) your users that they have to kind of worry about getting in the way of things too so yeah i think that makes a ton of sense from um from a technical perspective uh for sure so um who who's kind of like the audience for user list like i guess like when i think about something being like a server-side integration i feel like that raises the barrier to entry a little bit for some potential people because a lot of people don't have necessarily the technical chops to to integrate that themselves whereas they could drop in a, a javascript snippet um what's the story for 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 that situation is that just like not the people you're trying to target right now? Or is the segment integration sort of like the way that you can give those people that sort of easy drop in the JavaScript to workflow without having to wire up all the server stuff?
1: Yeah, the segment integration is definitely one part that, that targets those people who don't like want to integrate another tool into, into their setup. But I guess eventually we will just like, we'll have to provide a client side integration as well It's just, it just wasn't a good choice to get started with. I think it was, was a better choice to have like just server side integration, where everything is pretty controlled and uh, pretty static. And I also assume that it would always be like the, our preferred or recommended way to integrate us. But in the, uh, in the midterm, I think having a JavaScript snippet is. Is not avoidable. Like <laughs> we have to do it at some point, but like there are so many, there are so many open questions around that, especially when it comes to like authentication. Because like with most of the snippets out there, you can basically impersonate anyone. And uh, to the only way I figured out to prevent that is to kind of s- sign parts of the request on the server side. But then you are doing server side coding again, and. Uh, it's it's not really an improvement.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is funny. I think um, I've explored like building little client side integrations for for different ideas and stuff in the past. And as soon as you start going down that road, it, it, there's so many different things that you start having to worry about that don't really seem to have um, obvious solutions. Like, even if you were to build, um, you know, like a uh, like an email signup form. It seems like the simplest thing ever. It's like one field and a button, but trying to take into account, like how do you deal with bots that are going to come and like spam that form because it's on a page that isn't behind any sort of authentication or anything. There's just like so many annoying things that you have to worry about when you're exposing some URL to the world that is, um, yeah. you know, uh, that actually has a side effect you know creates records in the database or or does whatever it's just yeah it's just kind of a scary thing uh to do um are there any other uh sort of challenges that sort of came to mind that that really just made you think you know we should just stick with the server side integration for now like were there any other things that we haven't haven't covered so far that you ran into that just seemed like this
1: isn't a problem we want to have to solve i think we've touched on the main points um I mean, if, we, if you think a little bit longer about it, we'll probably find two or three more reasons, but like, those are the main, the main reasons, uh, basically the, I don't know, unreliability of the, of the whole uh, browser-side thing and the security concerns that were the main parts that stopped me from even evaluating the, this part in the, in the first run. But as I said, um, it's become obvious that we in order to provide a service to everyone, we should probably figure out something something there to make adoption a little bit easier
0: yeah i like that you have an option to do it this way though because there's a lot of tools that i use as like a technical person where i would prefer something that maybe has a little bit of a higher barrier to entry but i feel like i trust the solution more or there's less things for me to to be concerned about Um, so i like that um, you have the ability to do both in some way or will always have the ability to to do both like i like the idea that i can just integrate it on the server side where everything is totally under my control and i know everything's going to be super robust whereas a lot of tools out there i think try to cater to just the lowest common denominator which is um always making sure that whatever the solution is works for non-technical people even if it's less optimal for people who do have those skills and like i think this bleeds over into another area in user list that i noticed that Um, I was really excited about when I saw which is that it's the first tool for sending emails I've ever seen that has a markdown button on the on the email editor what prompted you to do that is that just because uh you know you guys building it use markdown for things (laughs) it's just we want markdown or do you think that's actually uh, something that a lot of your potential customers are going to be excited about too uh
1: I guess our customer base is split like some are great like uh excited about having the ability to just paste Markdown in there, and the other part just doesn't care. Yeah. (laughs) But for us, we are huge fans of Markdown, and, um, yeah, so it was, like, an obvious choice in the beginning. Hey, we're going to do a Markdown editor, and actually the Markdown is actually the source of truth for us, so we store the Markdown in the database and then render HTML based from that because it also gets rid of a lot of, like, weirdness that you can do with html that you don't necessarily want yeah
0: yeah i've seen so many horrible things happen when you're using some sort of rich text editor and then you flip over to like the html view of it there's like empty p tags or empty spans or all sorts of stuff just because you happen to have the cursor in a specific place when you hit the bold button and you know it did something weird it's I don't know. It's awful. So, so if you're using Markdown for the source of truth for these like email um, editor fields, uh, how is that ultimately like working? Is, um, is it some library that you pulled in that kind of does this for you? Where you have this like rich text editor that's powered by Markdown at the hood, or is this something that you had to build yourself?
1: Um, we use ProseMirror as a, a rich text editor in the in the UI. And it comes with a, a Pro's Mirror Markdown add-on, I guess. Nice. That uh, translates back and forth between uh, its HTML representation and Markdown. And it's working relatively well with all of the stuff. That's, I mean, it's rich text editors. It's always... <ridiculous>.
0: Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is DigitalOcean. So, DigitalOcean is a simple, developer friendly cloud platform optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. Uh, I've personally been a customer of DigitalOcean for about five years, and I use them to host all of my server side projects, like my custom course platform, for example, which is built with Laravel. A lot of the guests that I've had on the show in the past are DigitalOcean customers as well. Uh, for example, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, he uses DigitalOcean to host Envoyer and Laravel Forge, and Jeffrey Way actually uses DigitalOcean to host Laracasts as well. Uh, one of DigitalOcean's newest features that I'm personally really excited about is Managed Databases, uh, which lets you spin up a completely managed database server so you don't have to worry about anything like backups, uh, managing read-only replicas, or just general server maintenance. Now, DigitalOcean is already an extremely affordable service. You can spin up a server for as little as $5 a month, but they've been kind enough to offer a free $50 credit to Full Stack Radio listeners. So head over to do.co slash fullstack, all one word, to claim your $50 credit. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. So I guess something that we haven't talked about, actually, that I think would be um, probably a a good thing to... Kind of based a lot of conversation around is what is sort of the technology stack that you chose for building user list and what were your reasons for choosing those different pieces of technology?
1: So uh, most of it is built like the, all the backend is built in Ruby on Rails. Um, it relies a lot of on a lot of stuff. Uh, it's using Sidekick uh, for background processing because like
0: the whole app is basically a huge job. Almost all
1: of it is, is just like it's just a lot of background processing. We're using Postgres as the database. Of course, we're using Redis for, like, Sidekick scheduling. And right now, it's just deployed on Heroku, so uh, super simple, um, nothing fancy. The front end is built in JS and talking to the backend via an API. Um, but that's about it, yeah.
0: Awesome. Um, yeah. I noticed that when I was looking uh, around the site trying to, like, figure things out, and I noticed that you were using Ember, which I think is a, sort of an interesting choice uh, to make in this day and age like i feel like ember has sort of been this framework that's always been there and always been improving and it's just it's 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 managed to just like survive this whole time and it has sort of like a cult following i think whereas a lot of other frameworks that i feel like that i imagine as being sort of from the ember era haven't really made it but ember seems to just like keep chugging along and it like has this user base, this sort of loyal kind of users. So um, what made you choose Ember? Have you been using Ember for tons of stuff for years and years and years and you just feel fast with it or were there reasons that you chose it over other technology that's maybe trendier like Angular or like
1: React or Vue or whatever? Yeah, so the main reason is in fact that I've been using it for a long time. Uh, I started using it when it wasn't even called Ember. Um, So it was just what I know and was comfortable with using. Um, and that's basically the, the reason why I chose any of this. Uh, um, it was a complicated thing to build. So I decided to rely on tools that I know. Yeah,
0: yeah, not and introduce like, some uh, other wild card in there where it's like, well, I have all these complicated problems to solve just in terms of making the product work. I don't wanna to have to learn how hooks work in React on top of that or something. <laughs> Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah,
1: yeah, but then again, like Ember is constantly evolving, so there's a, there's enough stuff to figure <laughs> out, uh, enough new stuff to figure out over time. So cool. Um,
0: um, just a quick question, I guess, about that setup. Something that I'm curious about personally because it's something that I've been looking into a little bit. There seems to be like a lot of different ways that people set up sort of the authentication system between uh, a front end like Ember talking to like a back end. Like Rails, like some people are using uh, JWT tokens and treating it as like almost like a mobile app and a web app, where other people are just doing like cookie session authentication as if it's almost just a pure Rails app. Um, what setup did you choose for uh, userless, and what was your motivation?
1: Um, we're using an auth two setup, um, mostly because I had it already built for for previous projects, so I just like took this over and uh, kept using it. Also with the idea that eventually we'll allow um, more integrations and usually that's that's the point where you don't really, we're not getting away with anything else, but like we're asked to have a smooth setup flow where it's just a click of, I don't know, a button or two to get two apps connected.
0: Got it. So when someone logs in to UserList, they're putting in like a username and password um whereas like oauth is normally for third-party clients anyways of course people aren't putting in like a username and password so are using like the oauth to password grant to issue a token for the local for sort of the first party client and then you just store that on the client and just send that as a header with every request i guess
1: exactly that's how it works
0: cool so i think um Another thing that would be interesting to get into is uh, one of the challenges that I've always imagined would exist with an application like this um, is email deliverability. Like that's something that I have had issues with with other tools that I've used in the past, and I think for something like uh, Userlist, which is really focused on, you know, not sending people marketing emails you know sending people like oh this is on sale or whatever but really trying to like send them emails that are pretty important that are going to help them have success with the with the product um i feel like deliverability is probably something that's going to be pretty important for you guys so what challenges have you run into there and what things have you done to try and um you
1: know solve those problems and keep uh deliverability high um Luckily, so far it, there haven't been too many challenges. Mostly because we—I mean—we launched last week. Uh, I think all the bad stuff is still ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we try to be precautious about about it. Um, and when we are looking for a partner to uh, basically rely on for the e- email deliverability, we explicitly looked at providers that would allow us to separate customer accounts into different subaccounts. So, like one customer behaving badly doesn't have a negative impact on everyone else um, and stuff like that. So we really try to be prepared for s- yeah. when bad stuff happens. And um, recently added the ability to just like suspend an account uh, very quickly to make sure that like if we notice that someone is obviously a scammer or whatever, we can we can easily easily. Yeah, block them yeah. from ever, from from ever sending again.
0: Yeah. So, what um what email service did you end up uh, choosing? I know there's a lot of different yeah. options out there.
1: Yeah, yeah, there are a lot. Um, and we ended up with Spark Post for okay. now. Um, they seemed like to have the the best package of like um flexibility and the ability to like separate stuff and also price. The pricing was okay. Um. I'm not entirely sure that we'll ever stick with, like, for, forever stick with them. So the setup is kind of flexible, so we can switch them out pretty easily. And I also try to, like, have, like, all the all the important stuff on our side. Like, we do all the click tracking ourselves, the open tracking ourselves, basically minimize the...
0: I think how much the, you're the depending on from data, them.
1: You know? yeah. yeah, exactly. So in theory, we should be able to switch relatively quickly or even like maybe we'll end up with a custom smtp server at some point i don't know yeah for now it's working it's working well enough cool.
0: so what about stuff like um, email authentication like dkim and like spf stuff i've i know some tools make you set that up as a customer um, so that things are being like correctly signed as your own email domain whereas other tools will sort of send things like on your behalf and then they show up in gmail as like uh you know this person sent this on behalf of this other email or whatever which i know is a lot simpler of integration for people who don't have the technical confidence to dive into their <laughs> mx records or anything on their domain so um how have you opted to set that up uh, with user list is it a mandatory thing is it an optional thing is it is it not even a thing and what was kind of your thought process in making that decision
1: um it's an optional thing but highly recommended um so, we allow you to manage uh, your sending domains within UserList. And um, once you set up a new sending domain, you have to set up DKM uh, headers and um, not headers, DNS records. And we verify those. Um, but if you don't do that, we'll just send from a generic your account name at userlistmail.com sending address and set your original from address as a reply to uh, nice. header. So, it's it works out of the box, but it's not like super pretty setup.
0: Nice. Yeah, That that's an interesting decision, actually, because the, some of the tools that I've seen when you don't set up your own sending domain with all the authentication stuff, they'll still send emails like from your email address. I can't remember the difference. There's like a from header and like a sender header or something, and they don't have to necessarily be the same. Um, but like... Yeah, when I uh, first set up my ConvertKit account, for example, and I hadn't actually set up all the authentication stuff, they would still send from my personal email address, even though, like, technically they can't and do it in a way that's going to show up as, like, validated or whatever. Um, So I think it's interesting that you chose to send it from a userlessmail.com account. To me, that sounds so much simpler and reliable because now it's, like, you can actually authenticate that domain um, still. So you're not trying to, like make it appear like it's coming from somewhere that it's not it's just way simpler um was that kind of your motivation for setting it up that way or with any other reasons that made that seem like the best option
1: i looked into other ways but it turned out this was the only setup that would reliably work with spark post so <laughs> got it <laughs> in the end it was the only choice <laughs> yeah
0: yeah yeah i think that's good though i think that it keeps it simple and um you know, it uh, it seems like it would be more reliable than trying to sort of like spoof people's emails, which I think is what a lot of other things are doing. And if someone doesn't like that, they're seeing, you know, your domain as the emails that they're sending well, of course, the option is there to set up their own email and authenticate it and stuff. Um, and that'll maybe just nudge them to do that anyway. So it seems like a, yeah. a pretty good way to set it up to me. So um, something else that I think would be interesting to get into is some of just like the actual technical challenges and building out some of the features. So uh, one thing that I've always thought looked like a hard thing to build in these sorts of applications is all the segmentation functionality because you have so many complex filters that you can set up like an example uh, in user list. Anyways, it looks like you can do things like, um, you know, create a segment of users where their email address contains this string or ends with this string or or doesn't contain this string um, and that person has been like the target of some custom event this many times in this time period like there's all sorts of really complex like conditions of filtering and it looks like nested conditions and i think it, it even looks like you can create a segment and then use that segment as part of like the condition for a new segment and stuff like that and in my head this just seems like man how how could you possibly construct cl- clean performant database queries for all this stuff dynamically based on all this user input so i don't know the first thing about um what the the best approach is to build something like this. So I'd be curious to know from you like what what went into making something like this work properly to give users the power to query their user base in such a powerful way. And what were some of the challenges that you ran into and what did sort of the overall approach look like um to make it work in a way that you're happy with?
1: So um what I ended up building was um we're basically storing all the conditions as an AST, like an abstract transaction tree of the like conditions combined mm-hmm. and then on the server side we compile SQL queries from that and um, fire them against the database I'm pretty sure we'll get performance problems with some parts of that in the future but I figure that's a problem for future me yeah <laughs> um, because right now it works extremely well and it's super fast um, and there's still like there's still things that can be improved like it's definitely not at the most advanced uh, database query building uh, that we can do. So I'm confident that it will be good enough for quite a while. So yeah, it's basically just that. Uh, saving hashes and arrays of conditions and then compiling a query from that and uh, storing the results.
0: Pretty cool. So so how what does it actually look like, I guess, in practice? So when you say you're creating like an abstract syntax tree, um, based on all these conditions. What, what does the structure of that actually look like?
1: Um, so in our case, I ended up um, choosing a, a format where we have like hashes with just one key. And the key is like the operation, like an AND, an OR, a, okay. a user value where we look into a field in the database in the users table, or an events value where we look at the property in the Events table and stuff like that, and um, like aggregate operations like all, any, or whatever. Um, and when you combine those um, together, um, it's basically, as I said, it's an it's one hash. The key is the operation, and then it's an array of operands that basically combine everything together. And uh, to build the uh, the SQL queries from that, it's basically a visitor that just walks this tree and flux things together
0: so you just have sort of a, a mapping i guess between what operations are possible for the user to select and what that should translate to in terms of a sql query
1: yep exactly that's that's how it works
0: still sounds pretty complicated to me so <laughs> did you uh, did you have to write all that from scratch or were there any things that you could uh, lean on to make that simpler
1: so the, the backend part is actually the easier part of it. What was really complicated was like building the UI and making it easy to use, but yeah. still producing like, uh, valid, uh, a valid structure. And then the other way around is even more complicated, taking a valid structure and then figuring out what UI should look like. Um, but on the server side, um, I relied heavily on, on one of Rails subsystems, I guess that's called AREL, which allows you to represent, um, SQL as um, objects and compose them, so all the visitor that translate the, the hash structure into SQL does is basically looking at each of those components and constructing a little bit of ARAL uh, AST to, that eventually gets translated by Rails into SQL and fired against the database
0: just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, Uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, So here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, So you probably know that typically images are the heaviest reasonableness your users have to download when they visit your site right usually way more than your javascript or css so in the past i would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like image alpha and image optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large uh, with cloudinary i can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it and then by just adding a parameter to the image url that i get back uh, when i go to serve it on my site cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, uh, request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter, and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL-based API. That's really just scratching the surface. But you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices, so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff not just with images, but also with the videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. I think another feature that would probably be interesting to talk about uh, because I th- I could think of a couple different approaches that you could use for for doing it would be um how you've actually done like all the automation stuff. So I guess, um, again, to reiterate, maybe for people who have never used a tool like this before, um, but maybe are used to or, you know, are familiar with something like MailChimp, where most people are just sending broadcast emails and stuff. Um, With something like UserList, you have this idea of automations where you can create, say, like a sequence of seven emails where this one's supposed to get delivered, you know uh one day after the person signs up and then there's another email that goes out four days after that another one that goes out five days after that and stuff like that um so what did it look like to actually like to build that like i can think of a couple different ways to do it are are you just like running um basically like a cron job that's checking every so often like calculating on demand okay are there users that should be receiving emails from this sequence and if so queue up an email and send it to them or is it optimized where it's like every time someone gets dropped into this sequence you drop a bunch of records into like a scheduled emails table or something and then before you send them make sure that they're still supposed to receive them because I know there's all sorts of reasons that one of those emails could actually basically be canceled because maybe someone has um, maybe you have a sequence for helping someone create their first project that's five emails long but once they have actually marked that project as complete or something you just want to stop sending them emails because what is there to help them with at this point so you need like all this kind of complicated triggers and stuff to make sure that you're not sending people stuff that's that's not useful to them so yeah what 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 did it look like in general to sort of um, set this up and what has your approach been to to building that system
1: yeah, this is probably the part that's most over-engineered right now um, <laughs> because what I ended up building was basically a workflow engine like you know from tools like Drip where you can basically plug stuff together any way you want. And um, that's what what's actually happening under the hood. There's only a thin layer, thin presenter layer on top of that that just makes it look like a campaign. But below that, it's a lot of, again, abstract syntax tree. Um, basically code in the database um, yeah. represented by different nodes. And when a campaign starts, we create a context that's associated with the user that then tracks the state of where it is in that tree. And um, we use, as I said, Sidekick um, for for background jobs, and it has a feature to schedule jobs in the future. So when we know we're, we're at a delay node where we just wait for a day or so, Basically schedule a job in the background queue that will pick up in 24 hours and then continue from this from this node on and um, yeah continue the execution until I don't know it sends an email then it's a yeah task in the in the in that uh, in that tree.
0: So say um, I think it'd be interesting to maybe try and walk through this like one step at a time to sort of understand how it works, because it sounds like it's probably pretty interesting. So say you have a sequence set up that sends someone like one email um, every three days or something for five emails. And the trigger for that is when someone first creates uh, their account and your application that's connected with user list. Um, So do you think you could walk through, like in as much detail as possible, what actually happens from the time that someone signs up uh, on, you know, Adamsapp.com and um, that HTTP request goes to user list to add that new user? Um, How does it, you know, what records get created in terms of emails? What jobs get queued? Are jobs only getting queued? like? after one succeeds so they all getting queued at the same time so just trying to understand like what does it actually look like for that to actually end up happening
1: i, I try to it will be hard without like any visuals but <laughs> I, I i do my best um so okay you send uh let's assume you just send one like user record over to user this okay um this will we will receive that record and first thing we do is create a Background job to just process whatever you send us, basically just to make the the HTTP endpoint as fast as possible. Because like we get same amount of data, like some amount of data from everyone, and just we want to make sure that this part is not not blocking anyone. Sure. Um, then we process that uh, snippet of data that I don't know that user with some properties, and we do. And insert into the database. So we either create a new record or update the existing one based on the identifier you specify. Once that's done, there goes there. There's another sc- job uh, scheduled that basically evaluates the event as such. Like um, we know this is like the first time we see that user, so we look for any campaigns or any automation that have a trigger with uh, user's first scene and user list.
0: So this new job, this is triggered from the previous job. It's like the very last yep. thing that that job does, got it. Yep. So this job yep. is now checking. Um, yeah, just to reiterate, make sure that I explain it back to you so I understand <laughs> what's going on. So you've created this new user and there could be like an automation sequence where um, the trigger for that, like what makes that start is that a new user joined the app so i guess what you're doing is you're going to query all of the campaigns or automations that have been set up in user list for this customer of yours and basically just iterate over them and see um, or maybe you're querying and you can just get the records back right away directly from the database but either way somehow you're evaluating each one of these automations and checking like is this event relevant or should this event trigger um, this automation, or create a new instance of this
1: automation. Yep, exactly. Um, yeah, it's basically a combination of being smart with the initial query, and then, but then again, like just iterating all over all of them and, and trying to execute them. There's also a check in there then that makes sure that the user isn't already in that sequence. Of course, with a first it, scene, it's not the case, but in some cases, it might not be the first event of that type. So we make sure it's not like uh, the user isn't entering that. Twice, um, assuming it's the first time and we really want to execute it, um, it then creates a it's co- internally it's called automation context that basically makes the connection between the user and that workflow or campaign, and then it goes off and basically walks that tree of uh, instructions um, that define the campaign. Uh, in the simplest case. This is a little bit more complicated than what I'm describing here, but the simplest case would be like, there's a root node. It has a lot of childs. The first child would be a delay node that tells the process to wait for a day. And that's basically, we enter that node, um, and it basically stops ex- execution and puts a background job again <laughs> in the queue that will resume in 24 hours. Um, and. That's where it stops for now. And then in 24 hours, that job picks up. It knows which node it stopped at and calls a method on that node telling it, hey, okay, ready to go. Do whatever you, you're you supposed to do.
0: So there, is there only ever one job queued at a time for um, the automations? Like, like, It's not until this like delay node, for example, until that job is processed that you would actually check to queue up the next yep. um, node. So what that means i guess like like an easy way to understand how that could have an impact on how things work is in the model where you're just trying to like queue everything at once if you made changes to the campaign like those changes wouldn't take effect for someone who has already entered the campaign but with this model if there's five emails going out and you um, change something about the third email like maybe the the time period when it should be sent like oh we want to send this five days later instead of three days later anyone who's still at step one or step two is going to sort of inherit those changes because that code isn't even really evaluated until like just in time essentially is that the right way to think about it
1: yeah that's the right way to think about it it comes with another set of challenges uh, especially when you start allowing people to reorder messages because like (laughs) Then they might be at the bottom, but you move them to the top again, and you have to make sure that you don't yes. send all the emails again and stuff like that. Um, so, how do you yeah, handle that's, that
0: that's you, what, situation? Well, <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, basically, the context record that ties the user to the to the workflow also keeps track of all the nodes it visited, and the node itself makes sure that it hasn't been executed before, and would then just like skip over.
0: Got it. So does each node have just like um like a UUID associated with it or something? Or yep,
1: yeah, exactly. All nodes are essentially rows in the database um, that are connected by a parent ID, and um, so they yeah they know they have a unique identifier and yeah, um, yeah we just save the timestamp in the in the context when it was last executed.
0: Got it. So yeah. So in the case of um this example that we've kind of been talking about where it's simplified one where it's just a handful of emails being sent with um, a delay between each one. Are you you using this idea of like delay nodes to create the delay or is it just a matter of say like the first email say it's supposed to be sent one day after the user signs up. Um, So the automation kicks in and you're gonna go ahead and schedule that first job. Do you just schedule it a day later like, do you need like any sort of concept of a delay there, or is it just a matter of telling Sidekick, like, hey, twenty four hours from now, I want you to run this job?
1: So yes, it's basically that we have like the delay node has a value that defines like the offset. What we also do these days is we have like we know when the last action was executed, like the last message was sent or whatever, and we basically use that time plus the delay to figure out when we when we're going to send the next message.
0: Gotcha. So what does it look like for um, for like uh, canceling a user being in an automation? So I know based on, you know, poking around the UI, if someone was to if you were to set up like some onboarding sequence and you don't want to keep sending it to someone after they've done some task in your app, that sort of is evidence that they don't need help with this problem anymore. Um, and maybe they've received like the first two out of five emails. At what point do you determine that like, oh, we should not be including them in this automation because I'm guessing there's like a job in the database waiting for, um, to send them like this, this third email. So say the second email has gone out and the end of that step, if I'm understanding correctly, is that it checks like, okay, what's the next step in the automation? Queue up some work to do that. Does that automation step like that job when it actually runs does it do something at the beginning that sort of checks like, hey, should I actually still be running or should I just um, basically abort whatever task I was supposed to do?
1: Uh, it's it's actually both. So whenever a job wakes up and continues execution, it still makes sure it checks that the the context itself is ch- still in a running state. So it's not paused or canceled or whatever. It only continues if it's in a running state. It also checks that, it's still at the node it's supposed to be. So I don't know, it was maybe scheduled for this delay, but now suddenly it's at a different one. Then it just like stops execution because something horribly went wrong. Sure. But um, like for the exit conditions, uh, as you mentioned, we have the ability to stop sending a campaign when certain, certain things happen. Um, those are triggers again. So in a similar way where we would check all the triggers, to start a campaign, we also check all the triggers to stop a campaign, and at that point, we would look for that context that connects the user and the workflow, and just um, move it to the finished state. And um, with that, it will always look into Sidekick and deschedule that job um, because it's no longer no longer le- no longer needed to be executed.
0: Got it. Very cool. So I think um, I think that's actually probably all the all the things that. I was personally curious about but i'm curious to know from you like what other um challenges and stuff that you ran into uh building user list so far like is there anything that sticks out as like a particularly hard problem um that you had to solve that you had to come up with an interesting solution to solve
1: um well as i mentioned before like the the hardest thing so far is building that filter ui yeah (laughs) have this AST and then have to figure out how to make a visual representation of that. That's also like non-tech friendly. Um, Because sure, I could just like print out JSON and let you modify that. That would work for me. (laughs) Um, Luckily, I have um, two amazing co-founders who push back on ideas like that. (laughs) So we... Uh, we have to really, really try to build like nice user interfaces that are easy to use by everyone. And um, yeah, basically that translating back and forth is one of the most challenging parts. And I don't have it fully figured out yet. Yeah. I can imagine
0: like if someone has, you know, nested conditions, 11 layers deep, like what can you even do? You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's challenging. Um, yeah, cool. So, so what did you end up doing? Like, is there anything um, in that solution that, like, you thought was a like an interesting insight that um, that helped it along, or is it just hard?
1: <laughs> I guess it's just hard. Um, at some point, I I had a realization that I just w- was using Ember in the wrong way, and uh, once I relied on that uh, data down actions up pattern that that's popular in Ember. Um, it got a lot simpler because then I was like, only not not mutating state in place, but only like calling upwards to hey, yeah. I do whatever you want with that. Yeah, that helped a lot uh, because before that I was just like, like trying to modify the hash in place, and then weird stuff would happen and things would get out of sync and stuff. And with that refactoring, that part got a lot easier, but it's the it's still super complicated and. I have a feeling that it will not be like the last version of it. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, I believe it. Cool. So, I mean, I guess if that's that, then what? what's sort of like the best way for uh, for people to keep up with you and the things that uh, you're working on with UserList?
1: Um, so uh, UserList is on Twitter, uh, UserList.io. I'm on Twitter at Benedict Diker, and I recently started a new podcast with my co-host Brian Ray. Uh, um, it's a slowandsteadypodcast.com. Uh, and we'll cover a lot of uh, user list and for him building feature on it on that podcast. So, if you want to really keep up, then that's probably the best place to go. Well,
0: there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Benedict about building userlist.io. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, they can be found at fullstackradio.com/121. Thanks to DigitalOcean and Cloudinary for sponsoring the podcast this week, and we'll see you next time.